0: Good morning, shalom, welcome to our Aliyah day, this uh, wonderful prep day, getting ready for the Shabbat, the Shabbat of Parashah Zav. We've been in Parashah Zav, of course, all week long, and studying, and growing, and it's been, a, uh, it's been a good week, it's been a fun week, a week of Purim, right, the week of Purim celebration, and I uh, hope you all have a wonderful Purim For us, the uh, celebration continues, Um, you know, Purim is a one-day holiday, but my wife and I have been to uh, Israel twice, I think it was now, uh, during Purim season, and there, Purim is like, uh, like almost all week long, so, you know, it's one of those things, they just kind of extend the holiday, so we extend the holiday a little bit, but it's good, it's joyful, glad to be with you, and Aliyah Day keeps... The Yetzer Hara away, Baruch Hashem. As I said, this is, the, um, this is the prep day. So today we're going to be looking at the seventh Aliyah, which of course includes the Maftir. If you have an article, Humash, we are going to be on page 585. And uh, this is going to be from the book of Vayikra, the book of Leviticus, chapter 8, beginning in verse 30. Or as they say in Jamaica, turti. So, it says here, Moses took the oil of anointment and some of the blood that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it upon upon Aaron and his vestments, and upon his sons, and upon the vestments of his sons who were with him. Thus he sanctified Aaron and his vestments and his sons, and the vestments of his sons with him. Moshe said to Aaron and his sons, Cook the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there you shall eat it with the bread that is in the basket of the inauguration offering, as I have commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, and whatever is left over of the flesh and of the bread you shall burn in the fire. You shall not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the day when your days of inauguration are completed, For you shall be inaugurated for a seven-day period. And it says, As he did on this day, so Adonai had commanded to be done to provide atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting shall you dwell day and night for a seven-day period. And you shall protect Adonai's charge so that you will not die. For so have I been commanded. Aaron and his sons carried out all the matters that Adonai commanded through Moshe there are some interesting uh comments about that last verse making the uh, the question why is it needful to tell us that uh, Aaron and his sons commanded uh, or or carried out rather everything that God had commanded it isn't that obvious if they um, they wouldn't be very good priests would they if they had not followed the edicts of Moshe and so there's some comments there about how they did not stray to the left or to the right and uh, it's interesting to read the different viewpoints but one of the viewpoints is or one of the uh, ideas given is that the left represents um kind of the cleeper the 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 unholy side the less observant side you might say and the right it represents holiness so the one of the concepts is is they didn't go to the left or to the right and we see this expression many times especially uh, or, I should say, um, most notably with Joshua, that God says, Be courageous, do everything I told you to do, do everything that I told Moshe to do, and don't go to the left or to the right. So, in this context, it brings me back to the idea. The reason I bring this up is that Judaism is very much has the idea of um, following the middle road. The middle road uh, uh, is the road of holiness, everything in moderation. We don't want to go too far to the right. That is, we don't want to become too stringent. We don't become uh, go too above and beyond you know, the call of duty, so to speak, when it comes to Torah. At the same time, we don't want to go to the left, which is dumbing down our observance uh, just for the sake of convenience or what have you. And so everything is in moderation. Everything is in the middle road, so to speak. And just a good reminder that that is the path Of holiness, the path of holiness is not an extreme one way or the other. We're not called to be monks. We're not called to be, um, uh, oh, hermits. And we see this. You know, we 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 pick on. uh, I shouldn't say we pick on, but you know, we 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 say things about other faiths that are challenging. One of the things that we have in some of the uh, ultra, what's commonly called the ultra orthodox sects of Judaism. Is that they have become um, a bit esoteric, uh, a bit monkish in their life, um, sitting around all day long and studying Torah, uh, to the extent that you don't go to work, that you know you don't join the army when it's in Israel. It's required to join the army for everybody else, unless you're a part of this sect, in which case you don't join the army. So you're getting government assistance so that you can. Because you're not going to work. All you're doing is sitting around in the yeshiva all day studying Torah. And uh, that's not, that's not, I'm just telling you right now. That's not the purpose of Torah. Okay. Uh, You know, we're not supposed to be monks. just closed up in a room uh, 24-7 studying. So we study Torah, of course. Should it be part of our conversation uh, throughout the day? Absolutely. But the Torah says, or the scripture says rather, if you don't work, you don't eat. Right? So... And uh, it, in the Torah, it, it calls men of 20 years and older to join the military, right? So, uh, you know, if you're saying, well, I can't join the military. There was no exemption, by the way. There was no exemption in Torah. You don't have to join the army if, uh, you know, you're too busy studying braces. No, that's not what it says. So as you join the army, right, take your braces with you. So anyway, I want to read this to you. Um, this comes from Bituke Hotam. Very interesting insight here with respect to the Minka time prayer that I've uh, had on my agenda to share for the last couple of uh, mornings, but just haven't gotten to it. This comes from Vaikra seven, 11 through 14. It says, "This is the law of the peace offering that one shall offer to Adonai. If he shall offer it for a Thanksgiving offering, he shall offer with the Thanksgiving offering unleavened loaves mixed with oil." Unleavened wafers glazed with oil, and loaves of scalded fine flour mixed with oil. With loaves of leavened bread he shall bring his offering. With his thanksgiving peace offering he shall offer it, uh, excuse me, offer from it one loaf for each offering, a portion to Hashem. To the colon who throws the blood on the peace offering, it shall be his. Now, Pituke Chotam very often has interesting insights that approach it from a more sowed level or Kabbalistic level of understanding. And certainly this is the case here. So I just find it fascinating because I love it when we can bring new insights to mitzvahs. Because uh, in this case, we're going to be talking about Minka time, the Minka prayer. And sometimes we see things in the Minka prayer. We don't understand what the significance is. What was it that the sages have in mind or had in mind when they put together the Minka prayer. And by the way, I just want to say cuz I just said the sages put it together, I can hear voices in my head saying uh people people out there saying, well, see this is it's a it's a prayer made up by men. Well, actually the Minka time prayer is one of those one of those items of Judaism. That comes from the men of the great assembly. The men of the great assembly included men such as Mordecai, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel. Uh, Obadiah. So we're talking about men and Malachi to include him as well. We're talking about men, yes, but men who have books in the Bible. Okay, So they weren't just men. They were obviously prophets. Um, so if they're qualified to write uh, books of Scripture and to be included in scriptural stories, then I'm going to suggest, and it's just a suggestion, I'm going to suggest that they're also qualified to make law. So it says here, this verse may be alluded to putting down one's head. That is the Nefilat Apaim. Now this putting down one's head is one of the prayers of Minka. Okay. So it says, let me just start over. This verse may be alluded to putting down one's head in the prayer of Tankuna, uh excuse me, Takanun, Slika. The Zohar, volume two, one twenty nine A and volume three, two forty one B as well as the Arizal in Sha'ar HaKavanot 47a, describe the great significance and power of Nefilat HaPayim. He says, At that moment, the sparks of holiness are gathered from within the negative spiritual forces. They come to life, ascend to a place of holiness, and unite. The person who is praying causes this to happen, for during the Shemino Esrei, or the Amidah, he enters the world of Atzilut. So Atzilut is the highest level. It's the divine level. It's the place of the Etz Chaim, the place of the tree of life. That's from the um, sowed level understanding, that's what it means. So it's bringing this up because we're praying the Amidah, the Shemano Esrei, right before we pray the putting down the head in the Minka time. So it says, he enters this place of Atzilut, the loftiest of all the worlds, and when he concludes his prayers, he immediately does Nefilat Apayim, and should realize that he's dropping himself from the world of Atzilut to the world of Asiyah. Why is this the case? Because when we are praying the Shem Esrei, one of the customs we have is to take three steps back and then take three steps forward. As a result, we are uh, symbolically, uh, we're doing that symbolically to indicate that we are coming into the divine throne room, to the presence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So, since HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you can't get higher than him, you can't get higher than the throne room. As a result, that's why it says we've entered Atzilut. We've entered, entered into the highest level. Which, think about it, if we're entering into the throne room, and the throne room is where the Etz Chaim is, the tree of life is, then the tree of life, the Torah, Hashem, they're all synonymous. Now, once we take three steps back, and we bow to our uh, excuse me, left, bow to our right, and bow to front, and leave, we've now entered back into the realm of Asiyah, which is the realm of the mundane, the realm of creation, the Alam HaZeh. So it says the lo- this is the lowest of all the worlds, naturally. We go, to the high- we go from the highest to the lowest. That's, that's, a, uh, that's a lot of G-forces right there. Um, so it says here, G-forces stand for godly forces. Anyway, it says, When he concludes his prayers, he immediately does nefilat apayim and should realize that he's dropping himself to the lower world. As he does so, he must virtually give up his life as if he were dying and passing away from the world in this manner that he can ele- it's in this manner rather he can elevate the sparks of holiness for these sparks are only elevated through a person's death now obviously this doesn't mean well in one case it, it means literally because there is an idea in Judaism that a person's death is a, is a level of atonement, but if obviously we don't literally die, but we become like a living sacrifice, it's, this all goes back to the idea and the concept of giving our lives up for God, which is why we see this concept spoken about so frequently in the apostolic letters with respect to Mashiach Yeshua. There is a reason why, because it goes back to Jewish thought. So it says, Therefore a person must give up his life as if he were virtually dying, so that even during his lifetime he can accomplish what can only be accomplished through his death. So the concept of of being a living sacrifice for God, as you can see, comes from Kabbalistic thought. That we can live for God only if we're willing to die to self. So it says, When a person recites Nefilat Apayim, he must feel as if he has descended from the world of Atzilut to the world of Asiyah. He must feel as if he has died and must have in mind to elevate the sparks of holiness that are within the various parts of his soul. ...within that world. Afterward, he should likewise realize that he is ascending from the world of Asiyah... ...to the world of Itzirah, and have in mind to elevate the sparks of holiness that are within the various parts of his soul in that world. Afterward, he should realize that he is ascending from the world of Yetzirah to the world of Berea... ...and that he is elevating the sparks of holiness therein. So, when it comes to praying this, I want to bring this out because when it comes to praying... ...the Minka prayer, to the laying down of the head... We can look at that metaphorically as laying down our life. That, And it's appropriate, by the way, I should say, because that particular prayer in Minga time is all about teshuva. It's all about coming back to God and recognizing that we need to make uh, teshuva. Somebody asked me in a class uh, downtown uh, this last week, um, the gentleman was asking how, you know, you... You, you, I was talking about the fact that if we don't make teshuva, we don't turn back to God, that that's how one ends up in Gehenna, ultimately, which we're going to read in just a second. And the person was saying, well, how do you do that? Because, you know, I have I've, I believe in God, and I'm searching for him, but I constantly, every day, feel like I'm falling short and battling with thoughts in my mind, et cetera, something along those lines. And I said, well, that's uh, that's great. That's, that, let me give you the Jewish idea. The Some other th- uh, religious philosophies have, have the once-and-done theology. You come forward, you make a confession of faith, and that's it. You're in the club, you got the stamp on your hand, it glows in the dark when you put it under the black light, and everything is great, and, and really nothing else to worry about, nothing to see here, and go about your business." Judaism approaches it from a completely different perspective. We do absolutely depend upon rely upon God's grace absolutely. We Jews do not depend upon their own merit. That's really a misnomer. When you get down and I can understand where it can be confusing a, a cursory reading of Jewish literature would would assume that uh we we depend upon our own merit, but uh, we don't actually. Um the reality is is that Jewish people make teshuva every day. And in fact, we make it several times throughout the day for this very reason, for this very understanding as the the Jim was talking about. It's not a once-and-done theology. It's every single day is the opportunity to go back to the altar and die to self. Every single day is an opportunity to mimic Yitzhak, or in the case of Lapid Jews, to mimic Yeshua. Every single day is an opportunity to die. This is why the Apostle Shaul said in his letter, I die daily. That's what he's talking about. I die daily, meaning that every single day is an opportunity for me to come to God and say, you know, really, I don't want to live for myself. I want to live for you. I want to die and I, so to speak i want to make juva to you so this is why this this blessing and it just so happens that this 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 uh this prayer of putting down the head which we've just read in biduka Chotam, is talking about dying it just so happens that this takes place at minka time which is the time at which yeshua was offered up it just so happens it's also the most important the most powerful prayer and oddly, it's the one that's most difficult to pray because it happens in the middle of the day and there's just stuff going on and life going on. And, you know, in the morning time, it just seems so much easier to do shakri because, you know, it's quiet and life hasn't started. Ha- I mean, you know, you know what I mean. It's the hardest time. And so in the middle of all the clip of life, the most important, the most powerful time of prayer, that's the time when we die. So this happens to be the time when Yeshua had his akida, So at the moment in which he had his Akidah, we are now following suit. So uh, it says here, I want to I want to read a, a section here from Midrash, I was, yeah, actually, sorry, you're, you're, that is correct. Midrash Tankuma. This is Midrash Tankuma to Parasha Zav. Um, 14. A, a little bit of a changing of the gears. Still dealing with sacrifices, of course. But there's a, a long section here I just want to kind of go through because there's kind of uh, several um, great things going on here. So this is what it says. It says, another ex- explanation. <clears throat> Command Aaron. This is from Viagra 6.2. That's what it's referring to. So it says, in reference to this verse... It says, Do good as you see fit to the Zion. May you rebuild the walls, After That comes from Tehillim 51.20. As it's, after which it says, Then will you desire the sacrifices of righteousness, burn offerings, and whole offerings. That's from verse 21 of Tehillim 51. That is to say... If Israel were not to bring burnt offerings before the Holy One, blessed be He, Zion and Yerushalayim would not be built. For they were built only in the merit of burnt offerings that Israel would sacrifice before the Holy One, blessed be He. Why is the burnt offering unique from all the other offerings, they ask? Because it is called the sacrifice of righteousness, as it is said. Then will you desire the sacrifices of righteousness, burnt offerings, and whole offerings, etc.? The Holy One, blessed be He, said to Moses, "...due to the fact that the burnt offering is the most precious to me, therefore command Aaron and his sons that they should be diligent to offer it before me." Now why does it say the law, the Torah of the burnt offering? That is to say, the reading of the law, Torah. See how precious the reading of the Torah is before the Holy Blessed be he. For man has an obligation to give all his money in order to teach Torah to himself and to his children, for it is stated, command Aaron and his son, saying, that is, that is to say, they should tell the B'nai Israel to occupy themselves with reading this section dealing with the burnt offering. So <clears throat> the next time your spouse says, You're spending too much on books. You can say, it's a Torah obligation that I should spend money to learn Torah. So there you go. That's my excuse or my story, and I'm sticking to it. For although they are sacrificing the burnt offering, they should be involved with the reading in this section, that is in the Torah, so that they would merit the benefits of the burnt offering and its reading. This is talking about the reality that as we study the offerings, it is as if we have offered the offerings, and therefore we benefit from those offerings. And so did Rabbi Shmuel bar Abba say, The Holy One blessed be, he said to Israel, Although in the future the base of Mikdash, that is the temple, is destined to be destroyed and the offerings will be abolished. Why are the offerings abolished? Because the temple is destroyed. Do not allow yourself to forget the laws of arranging the offerings. Be diligent to read the passages dealing with them and to constantly review them. If you will be involved in the study of the laws, I will consider it as if, as if you are involved with the offerings themselves. If you want to understand this, come and see what the Holy One, blessed be he, said, and showed yet uh, Ezekiel the vision of the base of What does he tell him? Tell the house of Yisrael about the base of and let them be ashamed of their iniquities, and let them calculate its design. Now, e- Ezekiel said before the Holy One, blessed be he, Master of the universe, Adon HaLamim, Until now we have been placed in exile the land of our enemies, and yet you are telling me to go and form Yisrael, the dimensions of the Beis HaMikdash, and write it down before their eyes so that they may safeguard the entire form, all its rules, and fulfill them. Can they possibly do this? Let them be until they come in from the exile, then I will go and inform them. So Ezekiel is saying to HaKadosh Boku, you want me to go and tell them about the Beis Middash and how to build it, but how can they do it in exile? Wouldn't it be better to wait until they get back from exile and then tell them about the Beis Middash so that they can build it? Right now, it'd be frustrating to them because they can't build it. They're in Africa, they're in Egypt, they're in India, they're in Australia, they're wherever they are, and they can't do anything about it. So, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to Ezekiel, Just because my children are in exile, should the building of the Beis Middash be idle? Now listen to this. This is very important. So he's saying, listen, just because you're in exile, does that mean you can't build the of Middash? You can't build the temple? We pray for the temple all the time, but does it mean that we can't build it? Yes, we can. Here it is. The HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, "...the reading about it in the Torah is as great as if actually building it. Go and tell them to become involved with the reading about the dimensions of the of Middash in the Torah." As a reward for reading about it and being involved in its study, I considered it as though they are actually involved in the building of the Bas Midrash. So with that in mind, when we were studying about the Mishkan, you may not realize it, but you were involved in building the mishkin. when we study about the sacrifices, you may not realize it, but you were involved in studying the sacrifices so. The wonderful grace that we have here is that, as we study these things, it is as if we are doing them now that's because we can't do them. It's like I was telling again, referencing the class downtown. The gentlemen there are in a position in which they are not allowed to have feelingin they're not they can't have it right they don't it's just an impossibility. so what I tell them to do, they tell me. Rabbi, can't wear tefillin here. What do we do? I tell them to study about tefillin, and when you're saying the brachas, say the brach of tefillin. Why? Because when you do that, it is as if you are wearing them since you can't wear them. Now, when you find yourself in a position that you can have tefillin, then that doesn't apply, right? You can't say, well, I can get to Phelan, I can wear to Phelan, but I choose not to get it. Why? Well, I wanted to spend the money on a new iPhone X, an iPhone X, because uh, my iPhone uh, 8 was a little slow. And, uh, you know, I couldn't get the uh, Candy Crush game on it so good. So instead of buying feeling I bought the iPhone X. So God, I'm just going to study about Phelan and you should count it as if I'm wearing them. And God says, no, since you're reading it on your iPhone X that you bought instead of the Phelan, I'm not going to count it. You see, so you can't use that for everything, right? I'm just saying, we've got to put balance in it. But since we can't build a Mikdash, we can't make the sacrifices. If we study about them, God counts us as if we did them. So it continues. I have nothing against the iPhone X, by the way. To make that clear, I'm just saying that you should buy tefillin first. Fortunate is the man who is engrossed in the study of Torah and who gives his money to teach Torah to his son. For an account of that money that he gives for learning Torah, he merits the life of the world to come. As it says, for he is your life and the length of your days. Now, I want to just point something out here. It gets got through saying that he who gives uh, money and engrosses himself in the study of Torah, that that's accredited to him in, uh, as merit for the life to come. Why? And it quotes the verse from Devarim 30 in verse 20. For he is your life and the length of your days. Notice it says he, a personal pronoun to to relate back to the Torah. So the Torah is a he, according to Midrash Tankuma. Selah. So it says, "Your life in this world and the length of your days—that is the world to come." And know that this is so. Now, Rav Asya says, "Why do children begin their learning of the Torah in the book of Vayikra? It is because all the offerings are written in it, and because the children are pure and do not know yet the taste of sin or iniquity. This is why we teach the offerings to the little children." I, I. I'm sensing a connection here between what I just read and when Yeshua said, Suffer not the little children that come unto me. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He's the ultimate akida, And you notice in that section, he says that you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you have the purity of a little child like this. And here we're talking about why we teach the sacrifices to our children. We start with that. We don't start with Noah. We start with the sacrifices, which seems counterintuitive. But the reason we teach the children is because in their state of purity, they can better understand what it means to have a sacrifice. And Yeshua, I believe there's a connection between that. And when Yeshua is saying, let the little children come unto me, because he understood that in their, in their purity, they would better understand his, him being the Akedah. Therefore, he says, the Holy One, blessed be he, said that they should begin first with learning the section, dealing with the laws and the arrangement of the offering. Let the pure ones come and become involved in the laws of the process of purification. Why? Because purity leads to purity. Therefore, I considered as if they were standing and sacrificing before me the offerings. Notice it says that when the little children study the sacrifices, it's as if they're offering up sacrifices. Maybe this is what it means when it says that out of the uh, mouth of babes you've ordained praise. And to inform you that although Beis HaMittash has been destroyed and there are no longer any offerings, were it not for the children who read the laws of the arrangement of the offerings, the world would not exist. So the world actually stands upon their study of the offerings. Therefore the Holy One blessed be, he said to Israel, my children, though the Beis HaMittash has been destroyed and the offerings have been discontinued, and the burnt offering have been discontinued, you, if you involve yourself, rather, and read the section dealing with the burnt offerings, and repeatedly study the section dealing with the offerings, I will consider it as though you were sacrificing the burnt offering before me, as it says, this is the law of the burnt offering. That is to say, one who is involved in the laws of the burnt offering will merit life in the world to come. There's a section here, um, just to fast forward a little bit for the sake of time, talking about uh, the law of the burnt offering. it says here uh, this is the law of the burnt offering, the mill offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the inauguration offering, and the peace offering. This is from Viacra 737. It says, do not read it as such, but rather, this is the law of Torah for not for the burn offering, not for the meal offering, not for the sin offering, and not for the guilt offering, not for the inauguration offering, and not for the peace offering, but rather be engrossed in the study of Torah, and it will be considered before Me as though you have been sacrificed before. Me, you have sacrificed before Me all the offerings, as D- David said. He said in Psalm uh, one nineteen ninety seven, Ma achafiti torateka kohayom hi hishati. Oh how, how I love your Torah, all day long it's my meditation. Just so happens that that verse I just read is the verse that I recite nearly every day at the end of the Shemano Yisrei because that verse is the uh, the verse of my name. You know uh, there's a custom to find a verse and there may be more than one, but to find a verse that is the verse of your name. Uh, that the verse starts with the first letter of your name and it ends with the last letter of your name, and that verse becomes kind of your personal verse. And so um, sometimes you can look that up in your Siddur and you find it, and other otherwise you can uh, you know search the Psalms or search other scriptures to find it. it. Just so happens that this is the verse that I've said for many 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 years. Um, at the end of the Shem Esrei because it's my verse. It begins with the Mem and it ends with the Yud. So, Oh, how I love your Torah, all day long it's my conversation is the verse that is uh, near and uh, dear to me. I want to share one last thing um, as we conclude today. This is the discussion from this same section um, about... uh, It says here, let me find out where I want to start. It says, um, All circumcised of Israel will enter Gan Eden, for the Holy and Blessed be He placed His name in Israel, so that they may enter Gan Eden. Now stick with me for just a second. This is going to take me just a minute or two to read through this. It says that all who are circumcised will enter Gan Eden. That doesn't mean, it does not mean, that just because you're circumcised, you're A-OK in the USA. We're going to get that in just a second, okay? Circumcision without the heart is meaningless. In Judaism. Okay, so stick with me. So, it says here. Uh, okay, and it says, um, ble- the uh, Israel may enter the Gonadin. Which name and seal has he ingrained in them? He has ingrained upon us the name Shaddai. So, every person who is in covenant is like a mezuzah. A mezuzah has Shaddai on it. Shin Dalet Yud. So it says the sheen was placed upon the face, the dalet upon the arm, and the yod upon the circumcision. Therefore, when an Israel, Israelite passes from this world, there is an appointed angel in Gan who takes each Israel who is circumcised and brings him to Ganadin, And those who are not circumcised, despite having the two letters of the name Shaddai, for they have the sheen upon their face and the dalet upon their arm, but they don't have the yod of circumcision which means that they're left with just the sheen and the dalet this word spells shade